Over the last few weeks, several of you asked, why did I go to Russia to begin with? Well, <clears throat> about every other year, TCM International, which is a mission that we support, which is a graduate school program uh, for students who are what was behind the former Iron Curtain in the Eastern Bloc of former Soviet uh, nations, and, and they asked me to teach a class on preaching and teaching the New Testament. And so I've had the privilege of going to a few different places, and this year they asked me to go to Russia. And uh, I, I did so with some anticipation and a uh, little bit of anxiety, and I, and I think, uh, you know, the flight from Dulles in Washington, D.C. to Moscow was a 10-hour flight, and with every hour that clicked off my uh, anxiety grew, and my blood pressure went up just a little bit, and I landed, you know, we get up to the gate there, and, you know, here's the terminal, it says Moscow. Now, you got to remember, I grew up as a kid thinking that Russia stood for everything that we weren't. I mean, they were socialists, they were atheists, I mean, we, we thought that they were wanting to take us out, uh, you know, and, and dominate the world, and so here I am suddenly in the place that I saw as, as our arch enemy in that, in that day and time. And I get off the plane, and I can't speak the language. I don't know anybody that's there. I make my way through customs. I get my luggage, and I'm just hopeful, because I don't know who it is that's picking me up. I'm just hoping that I can identify that person. And bless his heart, he had a sign with my name on it, so we connected. We make our way out of the terminal into the parking lot. And they were doing some construction out there, and so they didn't have nice little lines like our parking lots do where you pull in. Everybody was just parked every which way and, and, and where they could get. And so I was kind of winding my way through the cars and wasn't paying too much attention to the cars yet. And so we get to his car and we get the luggage in. And then I get in on what would normally be the driver's side, but it's the passenger side. So I'm thinking, oh, okay. In Russia, they drive on the opposite side of the road from what we do. <laughs> no, they drive on the same side of the road as we do here in the United States. It's just that Alexei had been able to get a really good deal on this old imported Honda that had right-hand drive. Okay. <laughs> So it's everybody for himself as you try to get to the gates there at the airport. And so there's a lot of honking and a lot of maneuvering and a lot of cutting off. And Alexei's doing a pretty good job of honking and cutting people off. The only problem is that the Russian drivers were glaring at me because I was in the driver's seat, you know. <laughs> well, I couldn't do anything about it. And that needs no translation. Let me tell you, a glare is a glare no matter what the language is. And so I'm kind of going, <laughs> he's smiling. <laughs> Because you know, there's not a thing I can do about it. So finally, we get out of the gate at the airport, and that's when the race began. I just was not quite prepared for this. Alexei is driving 80 to 100 kilometers per hour right through the middle of Moscow. That'd be like driving 60 miles per hour in downtown Indianapolis. And I'm sitting where he should have been sitting and where all the rest of the traffic is whizzing by, and I'm just kind of, I'm stressed. Now, to add to that... The old Honda had a GPS that only had Japanese maps and cities in it. So the whole time, the GPS is telling us we are going the wrong way in Tokyo. <laughs> so when we finally get there, two hours later, I am stressed to the max. It took me a long time to catch my breath and just calm down. Stress is something that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And most of us say, oh, I wish I could get rid of all of my stress. Well, when you reach zero stress, you're dead. <laughs> so you don't want zero stress, okay? Some stress is a sign of life. Even some stress is important for life. But most of us don't just cope with some stress. We flounder under a ton of stress. Consequently, we worry about the stress. And the more we worry, the more stressed we become. It is a vicious cycle. And once again, once again, 
God's Word contains wisdom that when we put it into practice, helps erase the stress and helps us deal with the worry. Proverbs 12, 25. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Ecclesiastes 11.10, so then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, these are not just simple platitudes regarding a non-threatening concern. Stress and worry are serious issues. They can be killers. So how is it that the Scripture can encourage us to let go of our anxiety and our worry when there is so much stress around us? I think the psalmist gives us a wonderful answer in Psalm 46, verse 1. This is one you ought to read and learn and focus on every day. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Did you guys show the picture of my class a few minutes ago? Did, was the class up there on the screen? <laughs> was it up there now? Okay, there we go, all right. Now you look at their faces and you don't see this, this worry or this stress or this concern. It's because these, my, my class was a wonderful class, and I, and I fell in love with these, these Christians, these servants of God in, in this country halfway around the world, and they are committed to serving Christ in their homeland. But I look at their faces and, and the joy that we shared and the laughter that we shared, and I realize that when you know the Lord, when you know the King of kings and the Lord of lords, doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter where you live, you can handle the stresses and the tough times of life when they come. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Now, for many, worry dominates their waking moments. Anxiety fuels pessimism. We fret and we stew over things we can't change, but we wish we could, and so we keep on trying despite our futile efforts. And, and in our futility, we just add to our stress. The American Institute on Stress offers this observation, quote, there are numerous emotional and physical disorders that have been linked to stress, including depression, anxiety, heart attacks, stroke, hypertension, immune system disorders, and a host of viral-linked illnesses. In addition, stress can have direct effects on the skin. It can create rashes, hives, uh, dermatitis. It impacts the gastrointestinal system. It can contribute to insomnia and degenerative neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease and others. In fact, it's hard to think of any disease in which stress cannot play an aggravating role or any part of the body that is not affected, end quote. Wow. And have you ever noticed how much of our worry and our stress is focused on things that are either misplaced or really don't matter? Now take a look at these three pictures. Of those, which one strikes the greatest fear and stress into you immediately? The shark. There is just something about a shark that just sends cold chills up our back. We even sometimes hesitate to go to the ocean because there might be a shark there. Do you know that annually shark attacks take six lives globally? Six lives. Elephants kill 200 people a year. Mosquitoes contribute to 2 million deaths a year. How many of you have lost sleep over an elephant? Let me see your hand. 
Exactly. Sometimes the things that don't matter at all just drive us nuts. We don't even place our fears in the right localities. And I want you to know this. Everybody handles their stress and their worry in different ways. Some sleep more. Others can't sleep at all. Some stop eating. Others go on a feeding frenzy. Some quietly withdraw. Others lash out in anger. Some sit and do nothing. Others become contemplative or compulsively active. No two people handle stress the same way. Now, that's important for family members to understand, especially husbands and wives. Your spouse may not handle the stressful situation in the family the same way you do. And our tendency is then to become judgmental or critical of them at that point in time, thinking they should react like I react. There's not a right or wrong here, folks. It's just different. We're all wired different, so be patient with each other so that you can work through the stress together. A major result of overdosing on stress is what we call burnout. Burnout is emotional exhaustion that depletes our physical, mental, and spiritual energy. Like a rubber band constantly stretched beyond its capacity loses its elasticity, so an individual constantly stretched with worry will lose his or her emotional elasticity. Worry leads to unnecessary stress. Too much stress leads to burnout, and burnout leads to clinical depression. According to authors Minerth and Meyer, one of the paradoxes of burnout due to stress overload is that the people who tend to be the most dedicated, devoted, committed, responsible, highly motivated, educated, enthusiastic, promising, and energetic suffer from burnout more than the rest. Why? Because such people tend to be idealistic or perfectionistic. Now, if that describes you this morning, if you're idealist, idealistic in your thinking, if you're a perfectionist, then be on guard because you're at greater risk for burnout than the average person. What are the signs that you look for? Emotional apathy, detachment from others, reduced accomplishment, boredom, cynicism, impatience, irritability, a change in work habits, a feeling of being unappreciated, paranoia, all of which left unattended will likely result in clinical depression. Now, let me also add this morning that some people deal with anxiety, panic attacks, and depression that result from chemical imbalances or genetic predispositions in their makeup. Now, if that describes you, you may need the counsel of a doctor or a therapist. In such cases, just eliminating the unnecessary stress may not be enough. If medication is called for, don't think of that as a sign of weakness. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Take the medicine. If therapy is helpful, it's not a lack of faith. We seek wise counsel. I believe that God works through the healing professions of our culture. I wouldn't expect anything less from the great physician himself. Who gave us the knowledge to be able to address these issues? Now, all of that said, I believe Jesus gave us some wonderful advice on dealing with the whole issue of worry on a day-to-day -day basis. And it comes from his marvelous Sermon on the Mount. You know this passage. You've read this passage lots of times, but most of us in this room don't live this passage. Knowing it doesn't count if you don't live it. So hear it again. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 6. Turn, turning your scriptures to Matthew 6. It's right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to begin in verse 25. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen. But this is what we read. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Why, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what we go to wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now listen carefully. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, in this incredible passage of Scripture, I think there are two main principles that I really want you to remember. I need to remember these. I need to practice these on a daily basis, and I assume you do too. Here's the first one. Let go of yesterday and let go of tomorrow, live now. Okay? Let go of yesterday and tomorrow, live now. One lady sent out this email to her friend. She said, start worrying now, I'll send details later. (laughs) Isn't that the way we are? You know, worry first, think later. Some of us are good at worry. Uh, We don't even have to have the details to start the butterflies flying and fluttering in our stomachs. And really, nearly all of our worries focus on these two areas, the past and the future. Jesus placed bookends on this passage. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but when we read the passage, the first verse and the last verse are like bookends that hold all the rest of this together. The first one says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, or or, or what you will wear. Jesus is is simply saying, don't worry about your life past, don't worry about your life future. And then he ends up the very last verse and he says, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is saying, you're fixated on the two areas that are futile. Some people cannot stop living in the past. They constantly replay the video of their lives and the poor choices they have made years ago, never moving on from that point into the rest of life. Do you realize that while some guilt is important in helping us recognize sin, that most of all, the most of our guilt is the tool of Satan to distract us from God? Because when you are fixated on what's wrong in your life, you can't be fixated on God. And if you're a Christian, God has forgiven the past, so stop going back there. God does not dwell in the past, and when we do, we're there all alone. We all have regrets about the past. If I could go back in my life and do some things better and over and make wiser choices, I would do that. You would too, but we can't change the past. But we can stop living there. Yesterday is a ghost town. Its empty images and dark shadows will haunt you if you let it. You can't change what you did yesterday, but you can change today by using the lessons of the past to make wise and godly choices now. As to the future, do your best to prepare for it, but stop worrying about it. Jesus asked, 
Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? It's a redundant question. There is no answer to it because nobody can add a single extra minute, let alone an hour or a week or a month or a year, by worrying. As a matter of fact, the more you worry, the more hours you shave off your life. You're cutting yourself short by doing so. You cannot control the future any more than you can change the past. So don't worry about it. In a recent survey of subscribers to Self Magazine, respondents were asked, what is the last thing you think about before you go to sleep? One in five said they worry about the day. Worry will neither help you go to sleep, nor will it change the circumstances of the day that you have just lived or the day that you're about to live. Why go to bed with the last thing on your mind thinking about the day. Helen Malakote penned these words as if God was speaking to our stress. You remember when Moses stood before the burning bush, God introduced himself as, I am who I am. That's my name, Moses. I am who I am. This is what Helen wrote. My name is I am. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not, I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not, I will be. When you live in this moment, it is not hard. I am here. My name is, I am. Let go of yesterday. Let go of tomorrow. Live now. And, here, and here's the second principle I want you to take home, and it's simply this. Let God be God. Trust Him. Let God be God and trust Him. In the stressful moments of life, trust becomes a challenge because, you see, we want to be the ones in control. And when, when everything kind of breaks loose, we want to hang on to that control. And it's really hard to say, okay, God, I can't control any of this. I'm going to trust you to get me through these moments. With today, this being the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we had some folks from this congregation who were at the Pentagon the day of uh, that uh, horrible tragedy. And uh, when Jim Boer came back, we interviewed him about his experience, and I thought it would be good for you to hear some of that again. And so this week, Jim and I sat down, and, and he, he's been teaching a class here this morning. That's why he's not doing it live. But we, we taped his, his story a little bit so you could just catch a glimpse into there are some times when all you can do is trust God. Just watch. In September 2001, I was in Washington, D.C. with a class from Indiana University. Uh, I was coordinating a class for the Department of the Navy from Crane. Every week we were in D.C. for one of these classes. Tuesday we always went to the Pentagon. Uh, Tuesday, September the 11th was no different. Uh, we went to the Pentagon that morning and were meeting with the Undersecretary of the Navy. And as she finished her presentation, uh, all of a sudden uh, we heard a, uh, and felt more than heard, uh, a loud whoom. Uh, it was when the plane hit the Pentagon. It was, uh, it was not a loud bang or explosion, it was just a whoom. And uh, at that time, the uh, room started uh, uh, shaking a little bit, the ceiling tiles were bouncing, and, uh, but then all of a sudden it quit and it became very calm. Smoke started coming in from the ceiling, from the registers, 
uh, from every direction, and we realized that we were in more trouble than we thought. So at that time, the class that decided they would exit the, 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 the building as quick as we could, uh, they started down the corridor that we came in, which was about 200 feet long. And as they started down that corridor, the people in front uh, encountered uh, two or three people that actually worked in the building. And they said there, were too much, there was too much smoke and heat that couldn't go that way. So as the people turned to come back our direction, uh, there was a stairwell right beside the classroom. The stairs there were, were partially going, but mainly they were filling up with heat and smoke. So we told the rest of the class they had to go that direction. Uh, that was the only way out. So they turned and uh, started out the uh, corridor. Uh, but this time smoke was about, uh, uh, the corridor itself was about eight foot wide and eight foot tall. Uh, doors on both sides, no windows. And this time the smoke started filling the corridor uh, to the point where uh, everyone had a, either a scarf or handkerchief out covering their face, uh, leaning over as far as you could uh, without getting on your hands and knees, but just leaning over, bending at the waist, trying to stay under the uh, smoke, but yet trying to get out of the building. Uh, we were on the fifth floor of the Pentagon. The plane came in and took out floors one and two, and we were somewhere between 50 and 60 feet from the point of impact. Uh, the only escape route then we had down this corridor was actually over the path of the plane where it came in, and our only escape route, which was this fifth floor corridor, collapsed about 15 minutes after we got out of the building. So the wedge that you saw on TV, where you saw the wedge missing from the Pentagon, uh, the corridor on the fifth floor of that wedge was our only escape route from the Pentagon. Uh, dur during that time, uh, as we got part of the way down the hallway, the uh, room started getting darker, the emergency lights went out, uh, smoke started filling the corridor to the point where you, you could not see ahead of you. You could see maybe your feet, but that was it. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, I can remember uh, talking to myself and sort of saying, you can't go back because the stairwell's gone. Uh, this is the only way out, but it looks black. We have no idea what's ahead of us. And uh, th there's nothing else I can do. I can remember thinking about, uh, about Becky and the girls and just thinking, I'll never get to see anyone again because this is the end. But it was not, it was nothing of panic. It was, I, the, the, the calmness that came over me, uh, the contentment, I cannot describe how peaceful I was at that moment. It was like everything had been lifted off of me uh, completely. Uh, I was completely at ease with, with everything and completely comfortable. Uh, it did not keep you from, from moving ahead and trying to get out, but, but it was just a contentment I felt that I've never felt before. Uh, in retrospect, I really equate it to, uh, to what Jesus says. He says, if you give, us your, if you give me your troubles, uh, you turn things over to me, I'll take care of it. And I really truly believe in that moment that he knew that I was in trouble, he knew that I had nothing else I could do, and, and he took over. Um, a minute or two after that, uh, all of a sudden we did hear a voice yell out into the darkness that said, follow my voice, stay low, grab the person in front of you, keep moving, and within probably another 100 feet and maybe another minute or two, uh, we actually got to a point in the corridor where you could see light ahead. We escaped the building at that point and finally got outside and realized that everyone in the class was completely safe, uh, uh, maybe a little dirty from smoke and, uh, uh, and unease, but not one person panicked, no one went into shock, and uh, we just felt very blessed that, uh, that we got out. One of the things that the uh, uh, September 11 has done is uh, it has allowed me to talk to lots of groups, lots of people, 
and, and just to share my experience. And my experience is that there are a lot of faith-based thing, things that happened. Uh, for example, the Pentagon, even the chief engineer of the Pentagon, uh, uh, we have an email from her saying that there's no rational reason why that part of the building stayed up for about 30 minutes total uh, after the plane went in because it had sheared off almost 20 of the large girders that held that part of the building up. And she said, there's no rational reason that we know of structurally why that part did not collapse immediately. Uh, I think there was a big hand under there. Worry is not something anymore that I, that, I, that I really worry about because 10 years ago, today, it all could have ended. And uh, anything from that point on is, uh, is borrowed time. And it's, uh, I try to look at it every day anew. It's a great story. And I, I listen to that and I think what a beautiful picture of God's hand underneath holding that up for them to get through. That if you trust him, if you lean on him, he'll take care of those things. And I do believe that in the place of the worry and the stress, God gives us a sense of calmness. Now, it's true, some people don't want to let go of the worry. They, they've become accustomed to worry. Uh, as a matter of fact, worry becomes a way for them to get sympathy, or worry is a way that they can abdicate their responsibility. They spend all their time worrying. They never do anything about it. And most people think that it's the outside pressure that causes the worry, but it doesn't. Worry is a matter of the mind and the soul. The outside pressures only reveal our tendency to worry. And worry always stands in contrast of trust. Rick Warren writes, he said, worry is a warning light that God is really not first in my life at this particular moment. You see, you can handle the stress with either self-focused worry or you can handle the stress with God-focused trust. Worry, you lose. Trusting God, you win. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. When you and I cannot understand what's happening around us, when it feels like the whole world is crumbling in around us and we are filled with this dread and this sense of stress and, and, and worry, that's when you need to say, okay, God, this is completely out of my hands, but not yours. I trust you. And to illustrate that, Jesus uses two ordinary but profound examples that all of us can understand and relate to. He talks about the grass, and the trees, and the flowers, and the field. Now, I, I know when you mow your yard, it may be a burden to you, but have you ever stopped to think about how important your yard is to your house, and the trees, and the flowers around you? You know, our, our greatest source of energy is the sun, but we cannot use sunlight in its, in its usable form for most of it. Um, <clears throat> and so when the sunlight comes, it is the grass, and the flowers, and the trees, it's the plant life that becomes this incredible complex machine, a photosynthetic factory where literally hundreds of chemical reactions take place in perfect sequence to convert sunlight and carbon into sugar and starch, and we consume the products of these factories in the leaves, seeds, nuts, and fruits that we enjoy. What's more, the byproduct of all of that is oxygen that we need for life. If only our man-made factories could be so efficient. By God's design, the yard out in front of your house is sustaining you. And if you're really stressed out this morning, go home and open up your refrigerator and take out an egg and stare at it for 60 seconds, okay? Now, I know that sounds a little bit odd, but, but uh, last month I, I talked about in one of my minute messages this incredible thing called the egg. And it would be true of all birds, but let's just take the hen's egg, for example. Do you realize that there are 10,000 holes 
in that shell? Holes that let oxygen in and carbon dioxide out, and yet the shell is coated with something called the bloom that keeps dust out of the holes and bacteria from getting into the egg? That the egg white becomes an, a shock absorber for the small chick as it begins to grow and develop? Not only that, it's filled with protein. It contains an enzyme, the same enzyme that is in your eye, that protects your eye from the bacteria that is exposed to in the air. And so that, that egg contains that same enzyme. And so here's this shock absorber. When the chick develops into its full-grown size and is ready to hatch out, it consumes the yolk, which gives it three days' worth of nourishment and water. And then it takes and breaks this little air pocket in the top of the egg, which gives the chick six hours of oxygen to get out of the egg. And on the beak of that chick is developed what is called an egg tooth, and it is what the chick uses to break through the shell. You say, why are you telling me all of this? Because if God can turn the grass of the field into a sunlight conversion factory and can enable a tiny chick to develop in and then escape from such an extraordinarily designed capsule of life, then what do you have to worry about that he can't handle? Let God be God, okay? Stop applying for his job. <laughs> you just live your life as he has directed you to live. You do your best and trust him. So take a good look at your yard and the birds that fly over it. And remember that Jesus taught us that if God can take the grass under your feet and protect it, and protect the birds that fly over your head, then he can protect that one who is in between those two. When the girls were growing up, we enjoyed occasional trips that involved theme parks. And so Elsie and I would make the plans, we'd uh, set the calendar, we'd reserve the motel room, we'd pay for the tickets. The girls didn't have to do anything. When we got inside the gate, we always just asked them one thing, stick close, don't run off, okay? Because the fun time we're about to have could end immediately if you get separated from us and then suddenly this journey of joy will become a trip of anxiousness, stress, anxiety, and fear. Isn't that exactly what God is saying here? Isn't that what Jesus means when he says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. God has taken care of everything, folks. He's made the plans. He's set the calendar. He's even bought our tickets home. He just asks one thing, stick close to me, stay by my side, I'll get you through. Because you see, when you get separated from the Father, that's when this journey of joy turns into anxiety, stress, and worry. You see, in the most unexpected ways, at the most unusual times, with the most surprising results, God not only responds to our needs, he responds with blessings far more than we expect. It is, however, a matter of trust. Let God be God, okay? I like what Elton Trueblood wrote. He said, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Do you love him and trust him this morning without reservation? Are you trying to handle it all on your own or are you sticking close by his side? If you do not know Jesus as your Savior this morning, today's the day you say goodbye to worry as a companion. You're going to ditch that companion and you're going to embrace the Savior. While we stand and while we sing, you come to